Too often, I hear the rubbish about the big partisan divide that exists in Washington, D.C., and that rubbish goes on and on about how the two parties can't get things done. When in fact, and I've made this point before, if you look at the past two or three decades, both parties work very well together when it comes, say, to voting in lockstep for billions of dollars in new defense spending, or talking in unison about the need to give business tax breaks, and then just arguing about how big those tax breaks should be. But I was reminded of that because today I'm going to talk about the way in which when it comes to issues women rally around, the country is not, in fact, deeply divided. And that is probably the most likely reason a wave is building as we edge closer to the November election. And this wave is going to crash down on the Republicans and be powered, I think, and I'm not the only one that thinks this, by women. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for October 3rd, 2018. And this podcast is brought to you in part, as you know, by our major sponsor, the Amalgamated Transit Union, the largest transit union in North America that's fighting for the interests of its 199,000 hardworking members, and it's also promoting mass transit. It's also sponsored by the National Union of Healthcare Workers, a member-led movement for democracy, quality patient care, and a stronger voice in the workplace. And as you know, you can hear the podcast as well on the Progressive Radio Network at 6 p.m. And of course, you can also become a financial supporter, an individual supporter, by going to workinglife.org and clicking on the Patreon tab. Now, before we get into the major segments for this week's podcast, I want to do a quick update on some developments on a couple of things we've tracked for a long time. Number one, you may have heard that Amazon has agreed to raise its starting pay to $15 an hour for its workers. And I've talked a lot on this podcast about the greed of Jeff Bezos and the company's oppression of workers and the way in which companies hold communities hostage by trying to suck more and more tax breaks out of communities in what really is economic terrorism. To be clear, Jeff Bezos doesn't give a damn about whether his workers are poor. His decision to hike the pay, as was reported this week, is simply a result of the many years of activism and pressure from thousands of activists and workers, especially from those folks affiliated with the Fight for 15. It shows how, even as it may take a long time, people can beat big companies. And that's a good lesson for us to incorporate, remember, and pass on. And second, in last week's episode, I talked with David Cooper from the Economic Policy Institute about the push to raise wages for tipped workers in Washington, D.C. And you can hear that podcast and you can hear all our podcasts in the archive at workinglife.org. And that was a push that had resulted in a strong victory for workers via a ballot initiative, which called for that very hike. And lo and behold, as we discussed last week, the corrupt politicians on the city council including the mayor, have now taken this week the first step to rescind the wage hike, to roll back a wage hike that voters approve by a strong margin. Because that's what politicians will do when corporate lobbyists are buying them off. And that is what is happening in Washington, D.C. And hell, I hope that people hear this and they run against every one of those politicians, including the mayor, who basically want to consign thousands of workers to poverty. Those folks are bastards, and they should be voted out of office. Now, it turns out, whether a woman is a Democrat, an Independent, or Republican, solid majorities of women believe in tougher equal pay laws, child care, paid family and medical leave, a path to citizenship for dreamers, protecting the Affordable Care Act, and yes, protecting Roe v. Wade, which is, as I said in the intro, going to be a key underpinning and maybe the number one reason 
the Democrats win big in November. Underneath the Me Too movement, the thousands of women running for office and the current uprising to block yet another sexual assaulter and perjurer from ascending to the Supreme Court, I mean, isn't the one we have on the Supreme Court already enough for one country to tolerate? But underneath all of that, there are deep core beliefs about issues that bond women, no matter where they sit on the political spectrum. All that is laid out in a fascinating study just out called What Women Want, which surveyed over a thousand women across the nation. And here to talk about that study is my good friend, national pollster and generally wise person, Celinda Lake, who conducted that study. Celinda is the president of Lake Research Partners and a tactician and senior advisor to dozens of Democratic incumbents and challengers at all levels of the electoral process over many years. And because the elections are so close, obviously just a little bit more than a month away, I know that these numbers, Celinda, are generally how women perceive these issues. But clearly, the election is really foremost, at least in my mind, I'm sure certainly in yours as a political analyst and pollster. And what struck me then in all the things that you all found is on page 11, when you talk about how the country seemingly is deeply divided on these issues for women, there were just solid majorities, you point out, among Democratic, Independent, and Republican women on all the main issues, strengthening equal pay laws, child care, ending racial profiling, I'm just jumping down the list here, protecting the Affordable Care Act, and of course, protecting Roe v. Wade. Now, did that surprise you? I mean, you have a lot of historical context. Did that surprise you, the strong support among women across the political spectrum? It did surprise me. Um, And it reminded me of something that I think is really important. Uh, Two things. First of all, uh, it reminded me of a book I wrote with Kellyanne Conway entitled What Women Really Want, where we found an at 80% of the issues, women agreed. Uh, Perhaps with different intensity, but still you had a majority of women agreeing. And then in 2012, I actually did the YWCA study with Kellyanne Conway. And at that time, we also found very broad support. But given all the polarization that you see, I was actually flabbergasted by the support. And This study is the most in-depth look that's been done on women of color, and the fact that white women agreed with them um, was also really, really important, and the oversampling of Asian American Pacific Islanders and finding very strong support there as well. So yes, the the unity of women uh, around the agenda and the agenda, the aggressive agenda that they want to set for the next Congress and for government up and down was really surprising. I can't help but not jump over the point that maybe you were thinking that you should send a gold-plated copy of that co-written book that you uh, wrote with Kellyanne Conway <laughs> to, to her now. And with a little note saying, you remember this question mark? yeah exactly but but we'll move on and and stick with the most the important stuff and so here is the question that always strikes me um and you know as democrats we can talk about this um it's such an overwhelming support for all these issues especially if you look at uh the violence against women act i'm going to come to that in the context of the me too movement and so on but all these issues that you talk about paid family and medical leave etc it just strikes me that this is one of the things that we've argued for a long time that democrats should not be afraid of running on this throughout the country not just in quote-unquote blue districts or swing districts but if republican women also agree with this solid majorities why not take this into every community and make essentially the Republican Party almost a uh, forgotten notion, a rump organization, if you really went and argued on the issues? Well, I think what we want to do is uh, actually have the voice of women do exactly that. And I think one of the reasons why this poll shows such support was 
we went to great pains not to partisanly polarize it initially. We didn't ask the vote initially or anything like that. And I think you're exactly right when you're talking about the issues. Some of these issues, by the way, are not really even policy debates in people's minds. They're core values. So like equal pay laws and VAWA, the linkage between um, all kinds of violence, domestic violence, gun violence, the increased saliency of gun violence among women, um, the broad support for Roe v. Wade, even as it's being debated on the national scene. Uh, I think that, uh, and that's one of the reasons why it's so exciting to have the YWCA be the source of this um, agenda is because they are rooted in every community and could be precisely catalytic to those conversations. Hmm. And do you think those numbers have been enhanced because of the general Me Too movement that we've seen certainly in the last year or two? Uh, it, it predates the Supreme Court debate we're having around Kavanaugh. But I wonder whether those numbers, and again, you, you're the perfect person to ask this because you have a perspective about where women have been at previously on these issues. But did, could you see any difference in that? It depended on the issue. Uh, and so somewhat yes and, and some no. So like domestic violence, actually, that has been so strong for a while that even with Me Too, which is a very strong force out there, we didn't particularly see any change. On discrimination, we definitely saw change and we saw a pretty significant increase in terms of the number of women who said they had been discriminated against uh, based on their sex or gender. So it depended on the issue, but some of these things were so strong pre-Me Too of that they were core values even then. Hmm. Interesting. Now, one of the things that the study really does a great thing is then look at some of the issues by not just about gender, but around race. And you separated out black women, Latinas, um, for example. And one of the things that jumps out is that and you actually point this out, that race is still somewhat a larger factor than gender in some of the issues. And especially what really struck me was the question that you asked and looked at in terms of black women and they're concerned about violence to their family, that gun violence by police is obviously much, much more of a a salient issue for black women, 47% compared to 19% for all women overall. I mean, that's in some way not surprising, but talk a little bit about that, the race-gender difference. So some very interesting differences and a lot depended um, on, um, you know, it was about intensity. It was not about overall support, but in terms of intensity, there were some really interesting differences. There were also some interesting differences for the millennial women as well a very, very, very important constituency. So first of all, in terms of discrimination, we saw that African-American and Latino women, uh, Latinas uh, being particularly strong about having experienced racial discrimination and, and Native American women as well. Native American women also interestingly, and I think this is a constituency that is almost never heard from in the polls and a very important constituency, say that they were facing religious discrimination as well. In terms of African-American women, as you say, the police violence really, really intense, and then also, and gun violence as well, and then also just meeting basic expenses, particularly medical expenses. For Latinas, very strong concern about medical expenses and gun violence. And people think about gun violence as being only an African-American woman's issue. It's not true. Very strong issue in the Latina community as well. We also found, and we have found this in the past, very strong support for taking care of an aging relative. And in fact, in the Latino community, that concern starts at age 23. Asia-Pacific Islanders, the strength of the gun violence issue was amazing and then medical issues, and also being sexually harassed on the job uh, was an extra high concern among Asian American Pacific Islander women. And then Native American women concerned about gun violence, even though many of them are from the rural West, 
affordable health insurance, again, even though uh, many Native American women have access to uh, independent health care, still very concerned about affordability of health care. And then the strongest group on paid family and medical leave in terms of rank ordering. So some very, very important and interesting differences. And just here. and just to hone in on the uh, violence against women, sexual ha- harassment. So did your polls show that w- women of color feel that they are targeted for both violence and harassment exponentially, or it's not just gender, but on top of it, it's gender plus their race? Yes, and I think, and we didn't have a question on this, but it's pretty clear in the data that there's an interaction as well. So it's not just plus, it's actually height. And of course, there's lots of data uh, that demonstrates that as well in the actual assessment of sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. So the strong numbers you see across the political spectrum on these numbers around the issue, I wonder, and your study didn't address this directly, but you're just such an expert at this, how much of this is connected, the feeling among women, the strong feeling on issues of harassment and childcare? Is there any connection to the large number, the percentage of women running in, for political office in this cycle? I mean, overwhelmingly, like tens of thousands of women. It's an amazing development, but I wonder if you could connect those two. Uh, I think that there's no question about it. Um, so I think there are three things that really contributed to the rising number of women candidates running. Ironically, Donald Trump was kind of freeing because people thought, um, well, you know, I don't have to worry about how qualified and experienced I am. If he can win presidency, <laughs> I can certainly win Congress. And that was actually a real factor. Um, the second thing was uh, just a sense that uh, of impatience um, with the uh, lack of progress on the agenda. I mean, we have two decades worth of data on things like equal pay and uh, uh, VAWA and people just can't believe we haven't moved on this. And in the case of VAWA, one of the things that's really interesting is people don't even understand why it's being reauthorized. Like, you know, this is passed, leave, leave it, enforce it, expand it. Why are you reauthorizing it? Why are you even reconsidering it? And and just so my listeners are, are clear, VAWA, when you, we talk, you talk about this, that's the Violence Against Women Act. So people re- know, that's right. know that acronym. Go ahead. Good, thank you. And then in the Me Too movement really energized uh, women, especially millennial women. Uh, and it also now, I think, with the Kavanaugh hearings, you're seeing a connection for these women of their activism and voting. Uh, because the millennial women, very, very energized around these issues, but very eager to go to the next demonstration, the next protest, the next Twitter storm not necessarily thinking that voting was such a good step in that regard, and now very oriented toward voting as well. This is a real mobilization issue. And one of the things that I think is interesting about this agenda is it's going to work three ways politically. One, it motivated a lot of women candidates and gives women candidates an advantage. Voters think women are better on these issues. Two, it persuades swing women. There are some Republican, college-educated, independent, swing suburban women in particular who are very mobilized around these issues. And then three, it helps turn out the vote. It has connected the vote and politics to the activism and the voice. And that was something that was lagging behind for a while. Um, so very, very important impact, I think, on the election. That was where I was going to go with this, and, and you're, you're telepathic here. It seems to me that one of the things you're seeing, and I think it's not just in your poll on this issue, but in other polls, is that those three elements that you mentioned, the energizing, the connection to the voting matters, and third, perhaps as important if we're talking about district by district, and even maybe even some of the Senate races, the fact that many Republican women, what we might call moderate Republican women, suburban women, are very motivated by these issues and are going to be very, very decisive in who controls Congress. That's right. And there are long-term consequences here because those Republican women 
those suburban women, those college-educated women are moving too independent. They're moving away from their party. That can have very long-term implications. I think when the Republicans look back on this cycle, they're going to appreciate that one of the biggest mistakes they made was not nominating more women candidates uh, to try to hold those women voters. The second thing you see is that this could be very formative, particularly for these millennial women. I mean, they are voting 63, 75% Democratic. 81% of them say they're more motivated to vote because of the Me Too movement um, and more motivated to vote for women candidates, according to Barbara Lee Family Foundation work. So you're going to see um, some permanent, the potential for some permanent shifts here. Um, we're going to see the gender gap, which is the difference between men and women's voting, maybe double what we've seen in the past. And we're going to see that division with married women and with unmarried women. Hmm. And I wonder if there's a parallel there as we round up our conversation. I, I recall that back in, uh, I think it was 1989, I may get the year wrong, in California, when then Governor Pete Wilson pushed through that terribly very anti-immigrant uh, ballot resolution that, in my view, not my just view, in the view of lots of analysts, that pushed huge numbers of Latinos away from the Republican Party. And people forget that California, and I, uh, as you and I are old enough to remember, California was what's once actually a Republican state when it came, right. came to presidential elections. And that shifted dramatically. And the Republicans have not been able to move that just almost over that one ballot measure. So I'm wondering right. if there's a parallel to what you said just now about the solidifying of the gender gap. I think so, and I think one of the things, ironically, that may do it also is uh, if Kavanaugh is confirmed and we start to see a series of decisions come down that really change women's rights at precisely the time that our culture and our society is moving in the exactly the opposite direction, I think that we could look back and say this will be a realigning election, which is exactly what happened in California at that point in time. Over here, look over here, because while everyone's attention is on the Supreme Court nomination fight and a couple of other things, the Republicans are engineering yet another robbery of the taxpayers. With very little public scrutiny, the House recently passed a new tax bill that would steal another $2 trillion from us. Now, this is no surprise. This was part of the scam of the first tax bill that passed last year. So that they could basically pass a fraudulent bill, the Republican Party had to lie to people. They had to lie about all sorts of things about the tax bill, but they could only manipulate the numbers enough to cheat us out of $1.5 trillion and still not add to the deficit over 10 years, which was what the rules required in the legislative process. But the scam was, they pretended during that debate that a whole raft of tax breaks in the initial GOP scam bill would only be temporary, and that they would expire after a decade. Everyone knew that was a scam, and that they would come back to make those tax breaks that benefit rich people and corporations disproportionately, they would come back and make those tax breaks permanent as soon as they could. And folks, they are back. Now to talk about this and uncover and highlight this scam, our regular tax guru is back, and it's Matt Gardner, as usual, a senior fellow at the Institute for Taxation and Economic Policy. 
And I'm sure, Matt, you agree with me that there are plenty of policy issues that are being debated that are important. Certainly, who is going to be on the Supreme Court is certainly an important issue going forward, actually, for decades. But I feel like that little guy in the corner of the room trying to jump up and yell and scream and wave his hands, and I'm sure you feel the same way, that meanwhile, back at the ranch, as my father used to say, there's lots of bad things that are slipping through with almost very little debate. And especially this notion, and this is what we're going to talk about, the idea that there's going to be now a further tax cut uh, that the Republicans want to push through. And let's first say, this is no surprise to people who have watched this. We know that in some way there was a complete sham many shams uh, as part of this tax cut bill that passed before. But this specific sham was everybody knew that the temporary tax cuts that they put in place, they were going to come back anyway down the road and try to make them permanent, that they only did certain tax cuts as permanent and the rest as temporary as essentially a math gimmick. Am I right about that? That's absolutely right. It was nothing more than a fiscal gimmick. Uh, the difficulty that the Senate faced was that uh, last year was that they could only they only deemed that they could afford a one point five trillion dollar tax cut over ten years, and so their job was to fit as much into that one point five trillion dollar box as they could. And the way they did it was essentially by not having 10 years of tax cuts by making, as you say, all the individual side tax cuts go away, even though all of the corporate tax cuts, which were uh, just as important, uh, permanent. So the skids were greased in favor of corporations in the initial bill. And with a wink and a nod, Congress said, well, we'll get back to this. Of course, the difficulty is that there was a smart reason and I'm using the term with air quotes around it, why uh, Congress didn't pass more than $1.5 trillion of tax cuts last year, because we can't afford it. We already have a fiscally unsustainable situation. We knew that these tax cuts, even as passed, would make our long-term deficits even worse. And extending them now, as the House quietly did last week, uh, would threaten our fiscal sustainability even more. It's big numbers. You know, the the, um, the tax bill that, that, the big bill that, that the House passed last week costs nothing at all until 2026, because that's when all these temporary cuts expire. But then starting in 2026, we're looking at $250 billion a year, in one year, and that compares to 1.5 trillion for the entire tax package that got passed last year. It's big money and it's a big threat to our uh, to our deficits down the road. And I, I want to come back to that in just a second, but I want to underscore to my listeners when you were talking about they could only afford. This goes to the law that says you can't inc- you can't cut taxes that increase the debt over ten years. Am I right? That's exactly right. And there are all sorts of fiscal shenanigans that Congress has learned over time. To, uh, to get around this difficulty, this is probably the most cynical of them. You know, basically uh, pushing these costs down the road, pretending that there is, you know, you, if you have to estimate the impact of everything you do for 10 years and pretending that there's only, that tax policy only goes for eight years is probably the most cynical way of dealing with 10-year accounting you can think of. It's, you know, it, it's, Nothing more than a ruse designed to conceal the true cost of tax cuts. Mm-hmm. Now, one other point I want to address is the issue that you brought up, that we have unsustainable budget deficits. Now, the way I would um, not counter it, but look at it in a slightly different way is part of the reason they're unsustainable is what these tax cuts have, are going to and what we're spending our money to. In other words, if we're spending money, tens of billions of dollars, and we incarted deficit, but we were spending it on building roads, building bridges, upgrading schools, uh, investing potentially in healthcare for everybody, healthcare coverage. We would all agree that those are both economically smart things to do because they will then help the economy grow. And that also having a deficit probably is worth doing. But what we're doing with this and why they are unsustainable, both morally and economically, is you're throwing money at rich people, basically. That's exactly right. And it just, just goes to sort of the difficulty that Democrats face, of course. 
because uh, you know if the Democrats do take over after November, you know that they have a clear agenda on the spending side, on the public investment side, uh, trying to fund the things our government can do to help uh, improve living conditions in the U.S. But they can't do those things until they clean up the fiscal mess that already exists. And that fiscal mess is more than anything caused by these tax cuts. Yeah, so, you know, you're, you're right. There's an opportunity cost. Uh, every billion dollars that we spend cutting taxes for corporations and hoping that that will lead to good social outcomes, more jobs, better wages, more capital investment. It's a billion dollars that we can't spend on things we know will improve our quality of life, whether it's uh, better transportation infrastructure, more uh, education spending, better healthcare. All these things have a proven positive impact on social policy outcomes. But the you know the tax cut approach is just a wing and a prayer. Let's hope that uh, big corporations hire more people and that they pay their workers more. Uh, and so far, obviously, there's there's very little evidence that that's panning out. And so this is one of my favorite examples about opportunity cost and short-sighted stupidity. Maybe short-sighted and stupidity are mutually um, redundant terms. But um, on the question of health care, you could actually have complete single-payer government-funded health care. You could invest tens of billions of dollars in that, and it would make more sense for corporations to support that rather than the tax cuts that you're seeing now, because all the tax cuts that you see now are essentially doing, and we, you and I have talked about this in a previous podcast, is financing share buybacks, which certainly helps the CEO pay, because when the shares go up, the CEO who gets a large amount of their compensation through share prices, through stock options, they do very well, but the corporation doesn't do very well. But with national health care, single-payer health care, you would essentially give corporations a tax cut because they wouldn't be spending billions of dollars on health care. So that's the way in which both opportunity costs and smart economics kind of goes together. That's right. And if the Congress uh, seems sort of blind to these alternative things uh, that the opportunity cost is making undoable. I mean, it's really just, this is a gamble that uh, they can continue to uh, uh, read from the same playbook they've been, they've been reading from tax cuts, tax cuts, everyone likes tax cuts. Uh, and in particular, they're gambling that even the many people who say that they want deficit reduction or that they want universal health care or that they want any of these other unmet uh, infrastructure needs to be met. Really, those guys all actually want tax cuts even more than those things. Whether that's really true, I, I think is, is in doubt. We know, uh, you know, one of the most striking things, as I think we've discussed before about the tax cuts that have been enacted uh, in the past year, is that people don't like them. These tax cuts are less popular than some tax increases that have been enacted over the last 30 years. So it's people, people understood from the beginning that they weren't going to help the economy, that they weren't going to have a meaningful effect on their own personal finances, and that these cuts were designed overwhelmingly for big companies and for the best off. And they didn't buy it then, and they're still not buying it now. So, uh, you know, it's, it's the thing that's uh, a little hard to understand is why uh, the majority in Congress are so convinced that uh, trying this one more time is going to have a different political effect than it did last time. Well, that's getting into both, I think, sort of moral corruption and how to feed your donor base and to make your the rich people like the Koch brothers very happy in what you're doing and continue to have those large donations flow to your campaigns. That's principally the reason. But let's tick off, in fact, now, since we mentioned them around the margins here, why don't you tick off perhaps the three or four major big ticket items that are now being proposed that would be in this new tax p- package that you call 2.0? Sure. Well, there are actually three bills, uh, two small ones and one sort of main bill. The main bill uh, is not ironically, I think, the mean it is an honest thing, Protecting Family and Small, small Business Tax Cuts Act of 2008. And what this does is to make all the individual tax changes that were set to go away in 2025 uh, permanent. 
the big ones there are the all the you know the, all the marginal income tax rates uh, went down and were set to go back up in 2025. The child tax credit, the thousand dollar per child tax credit, got doubled to two thousand dollars temporarily. That's a provision that actually does offer some benefit for many middle income families. Um, the itemized deduction changes, uh, the haircut that, uh, that, that got done to the itemized deduction and the doubling of the standard deduction, uh, which also offers some benefit to low-income families, uh, that's set to go away too. Um, by and large, the and of course, the, uh, the new innovation, if you want to call it that, in the last year's tax bill, this big deduction for pass-through businesses, what uh, the Republicans called small businesses, but really aren't, uh, that's set to go away in 2025 as well. And so that's one of the big ticket items there. The marginal rate reduction at the top is a pretty big ticket item too. Uh, it's a package that overall offers a little bit for everybody, but is still overwhelmingly designed uh, to benefit the best off families. Um, just as a uh, as an example, uh, we've calculated that if you add up all these provisions together, including the stuff that actually matters for middle income families, the child tax credit, roughly half of all the benefits are going right now to just the best off five percent of Americans leaving you know the other 95 with the other half so it's it's a tax cut that when you add up all these little bits and pieces isn't really going to offer anything meaningful to low-income families at all and you have great charts for example the average tax changes in 2026 in the United States and you show what it was as enacted and then plus the proposed extension and it reinforces what you just said the overwhelming amount of money goes to the top 5% in terms of the how you divide the uh, riches, if you will, the benefits. And what's amazing is that, of course, this was the first stage of this, the first tax bill was premised on this notion, and you and I have talked about this a bunch, that, well, if you gave these tax cuts to corporations and to rich people, it would, and I know I've we've heard this before, it would trickle down to regular people. And we know that's not true. That just has never been true if you look at those these tax cuts going back to the Reagan era. It does not happen this way, and yet they keep forcing it down people's throats. Uh, they force it down, I guess, the Congress's throats, the lobbyists buy this, and yet it doesn't have much of an economic benefit to people. Right. And of course, um, this this tax cut, I think, is really shouldn't even be mentioned in the same breath as the Reagan tax cut or most of the other tax cuts we've enacted over the last half century, because uniquely, this one was passed at a time when our economy, by all accounts, was doing quite well. Uh, you know, the economy was growing already. Corporate profits were near record highs. Uh, the cost of borrowing for companies was already exceptionally low. And, you know, what that meant is that as a baseline, the things we hoped we'd get more of, the things we all want to see more of, more capital investments, more jobs, uh, you know, businesses in general uh, that wanted to create new jobs or, or create new infrastructure, uh, they already had the tools and the money. To do so. If they weren't doing them already, it was because market fundamentals were telling them not to because it just wasn't in a man. Um, so more so, as, as much as the, uh, the past has been littered with unsuccessful tax cuts, supply side tax cuts, as you mentioned, this one was different. There was even less of a reason to expect that this would have a real economic effect because the economy was already going gangbusters before the, the, uh, the bill was passed. And that's um, even more so true and emphasized by the corporate tax breaks that are in this extension. It's going to make um, that even worse by putting more money into the hands of corporations who, as you and I have discussed, have used it apparently mostly for stock buybacks, right? That's exactly right. Uh, the estimate for this year now, the latest I've seen, is something like $1 trillion in stock buybacks, which uh, would be far in a way uh, the highest ever measured. Um, and, you know, it, it, the important thing to know about these buybacks is 
opportunity cost, as you mentioned before. Spending money on stock buybacks has no real gain for the U.S. economy at all. For the companies doing it, there's this opportunity cost because the money they're spending on buybacks is money they can't spend on the things they said they would, uh, you know, building new factories, buying new equipment, uh, paying their workers more, uh, investing in their workforce in other ways, all these things that every American wants and that many of these companies promised and, and sort of hinted that they were going to do after the tax bill got passed are things they cannot do when they're spending this money on stock buybacks. And let's emphasize again, I've said this before, you've said it before, let's underscore again that the reason corporations do these stock buybacks, and this is run by the CEOs and the board of directors, is that that typically raises the share price of the company, and the vast majority of the benefits that CEOs get in their paycheck and their compensation is not in their paycheck every week, even though the paycheck they get every week, you and I would salivate over, and the average person would love to get, but the main money they get, the tens of millions of dollars sometimes, is in stock options. So the CEO is sitting there and saying, my God, this is almost free money to me, and I can use the corporate money to basically buy this stock back and essentially make more money for me. That's right. Uh, Yeah, I mean, the basic economics of scarcity says that when there's fewer shares on the market, the remaining shares are worth more. So all shareholders uh, are going to get something the huge concentration of capital stock in the hands of a small number of the best off Americans means that the overwhelming benefit of this is going to the best off. And as you've mentioned, uh, many top CEOs are paid partially in stock. So really buybacks for them, you don't have to be a cynic to think of these as basically a way in which CEOs can give themselves a big raise. That's what it amounts to. It's um, you know, there are other reasons uh, more arcane reasons to not like stock buybacks uh, so much. Uh, one concern is that they can make it harder to accurately uh, value a company. Uh, Bloomberg did a really interesting analysis earlier this year, uh, right when this debate over 2.0 was starting. And what they showed is that if you look at the growth in the value of Apple stock, just to pick one company over the last five years, about half of it they said was due to the effect of stock buybacks. Their stock prices being artificially inflated by these buybacks. Um, and so it's, it's generally seen not just as a way of rewarding shareholders, as a way of rewarding CEOs, but also as a way of artificially goosing up the apparent health of these companies in a way that, that really doesn't make things clear, that, that hides the real fiscal situation facing these companies. And that's not good for the economy at all. Mm. Now, there was one line in your report, one of the reports that I read around this issue of the tax breaks 2.0, which I found really fascinating. And I'm going to quote it and ask you to respond to it. Recent research has concluded that foreign investors own 35% of stocks in American corporations and would therefore receive a significant share of the benefits from corporate tax cuts, end quote. Now, I'm not one of these people that likes to fan the fear of you know foreign influence and those um, people abroad, but it is interesting to point out that if a third of the stocks are held by foreign investors, and they're not necessarily... Um, obviously corporate CEOs who can then raise the wages of people, all they're doing it for is an investment in terms of profit. That even more significantly says to people, these corporate tax breaks are not going to end up helping the average person here in the U.S. at least. That's right. And of course, when you have such a significant share of uh, these corporate tax cuts going to shareholders in other countries, the obvious question is, well, if those guys invest the money, if, you know, if this, if this churning, these recirculation of tax cuts into job growth actually takes place, that likely isn't even going to happen in the U.S. And so you're propping up possibly other economies to the extent uh, that sort of uh, reinvestment even happens. Anyway, you, you know, w- without sort of, uh, you know, as you hint, we've already got plenty of this drawing lines between Americans and everybody else, and it's not always super helpful. But this is this is a case where you can just look at the basic design of a tax cut and ask, 
how much of it is just leaking away in a way that won't obviously benefit Americans. Forget about poor versus rich, the 99% versus the 1%. This is all just leaving our country entirely. And that seems like a phenomenally wasteful approach to targeting tax cuts to uh, to anybody in America. It's just it's just letting a third of the tax cut bleed away, basically. Mm-hmm. Now, let's wrap up with this um, observation. I think a lot of my listeners obviously are probably more inclined to believe that the GOP and the tax cuts were were awful and benefited the rich. But it's always good to say there is an alternative way of dealing with tax cuts and investing in people uh, that isn't the GOP way, meaning the way they basically have shoveled money to the rich. And you point out on your website at itep.org a comparison between the tax cuts the Republicans have done and something called the Grow American Incomes Now, which is called the GAIN Act, which was introduced by a terrific member of the Senate, Sherrod Brown from Ohio. And maybe we should just talk for just a minute or two about how to do it right? What could you do that the GAIN Act underscores that would reverse or be a counter to what the GOP did? Sure. Yeah, that's a great, uh, a great question. The, um, the focal point of Democratic efforts on the tax cutting side over the last few years has always been uh, around the earned income tax credit. This is a tax credit that is based on your earnings. It's designed as a work incentive. It was enacted in a bipartisan way, expanded under Reagan. It's one of the most popular tax provisions around because everyone understands it's got this basic linkage between the amount of earnings you have as a low-income person. It's like a matching grant for earnings, basically. And so the work incentive effects are clear. The targeting is clear. You know exactly who's going to get it. It's low and middle income workers. There are some holes in it. The main one is that um, uh, eligibility ends around 60,000 now, depending on your family size. And if you have no children, no dependents, the credit is much smaller and much less generally available. And so the idea between uh, the idea of the bill you mentioned, the Brown bill, is to expand the earned income tax credit in both of these ways, to make it more widely available to childless workers, a group that is every bit as deserving of such tax breaks as those with uh, children, and to expand it a bit further up the, uh, the income ladder so that truly middle income families can get some benefit from this as well. It is a tax cut that is purely targeted to low and middle income Americans. It's a tax cut that would put money in the hands of people who are struggling to get by right now and would very likely inject much of their tax savings directly into the economy in the form of uh, added consumer spending. So it ticks all the boxes in terms of the sort of tax cut that most middle-income Americans would really benefit from and that could actually have some positive feedback effect on the economy. Now, it's... um, you know, it doesn't really stand much of a chance of passage in the short term. And I think the, uh, the sponsors themselves have said that uh, the introduction of the bill right now, first and foremost, is about drawing a, a contrast. And it's a, it is a stark contrast between their agenda for tax reform and what the Republican leaders have said they want to do. Um, but it is certainly a template for how a Democratic majority, if one emerges after the election, might eventually be able to go about tax policy changes after they've dealt with um, uh, the difficulties from last year's tax bill. Well, alas, and that's a good um, observation. We'd probably have to wait till after 2020 to actually make something uh, a law, since even if the Democrats are in power, it's unlikely that the person sitting in the White House would approve of the kind of thing that you just talked about in terms of the GAIN Act that's introduced. Right. Yeah, this is a, this is a, an educational process over the long term. And really, it, the thing is, um, the difficulty with the with tax policy debates in general is that everyone says they have a middle class tax cut, right? I mean, as you alluded to earlier, the tax policy debate over the last few years has been that Republicans, especially President Trump, have proposed high end tax cuts under the guise of this middle income language. 
And of course, uh, as we've mentioned, very little in the tax bill that got passed last year and that the House just extended actually helps low-income families. But so the power of the, uh, the GAIN Act, the power of this alternative democratic proposal is that it provides a powerful template of how you really could target meaningful tax cuts entirely to middle-income families in a way that could grow our economy and in a way that could help keep struggling families above the poverty line. It's a powerful recipe for how things could get done if we really do want to benefit the middle class through the tax code. And now it's time for our Robert Barron of the Week. And probably for the last time we can catch this fellow doing his dastardly deeds, our Robert Barron of the Week is Paul Ryan, the outgoing Speaker of the House as he drifts off into retirement after this election, retirement in which he will make millions of dollars likely as a lobbyist for any corporate interest that will pay him. But for lying to the American people, Every single day during the tax fraud bill debate, lying about who would benefit from the bill, lying about how much it would cost, and now ushering in what everyone knew would be coming. In other words, another raid on the Treasury to hand billionaires and corporations even more money. Paul Ryan is the robber baron of the week. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Thanks to my guests, Celinda Lake and Matt Gardner. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Thanks to our major sponsor, the Amalgamated Transit Union, and to our sponsor, the National Union of Healthcare Workers, and to all the individual sponsors like you who have been willing to support this podcast over these many, many weeks and months. Look forward to having many others join as individual sponsors, small financial sponsors. You could do that at workinglife.org. Click on the Patreon tab. Thanks for listening. Look forward to having you back next week.